In our woke world that we live in, I'm finding that wokeness, if that's a word, is also invading the church. It's invading the, the restoration principles of our movement to the extent that I, I have several friends who I treasure uh, our history and time together. We went to Bible college together and things of like that. But I've got several friends who I have talked with, uh, not in the too distant past, who actually challenged the idea that hell is an eternal place. They have begun to delve into the potential of hell being a temporary place, that perhaps instead of us, those who go there, going off into a place of eternal damnation, that it really is more of an annihilation that is eternal. In other words, you never come back from it. And so they'll make various arguments with regards to that, all of which I'm very uncomfortable with, and I'm about to explain to you why. I think that it is very important that we as Christians, as we set forth the gospel before the world, that we recognize that even though the gospel is good news, the reason it is good news is because it's painted against the backdrop of very bad news. And when you dilute the bad news, it without question is going to impact the good news. And when you dilute the bad news, you begin to dilute the just nature of God. And in that process, you begin to make a world, which is very typical of our culture, a world that's designed for you and me and our desires, what we want, rather than what God actually wants. And so as we, and this will probably be my last lesson in this first section on salvation. Next, we're going to move on to where do I get salvation. Um, but as I ask this question, why do I want, why do I need salvation? I'm going to suggest to you that because most folks in the world look at it this way, we need to address it. I need salvation because I don't want to go to hell. And one of the things that a lot of folks are even within our fellowship are undermining about hell is the eternal nature of it. And in the process, they soften the consequences of our rejection of the Lord. And by softening the consequences, they make it more livable, more doable, sleepable, if you will, at night, I don't have to worry so much. Because even if I do go to hell, it's just going to be a moment and I'm gone and it, it, it's over. And so we begin to allow ourselves to reason that it's okay, or it would be not the best thing. It's not what I really want to choose, but hey, I'm going to go ahead and live my life as I want to live it. And maybe I'll get to go to heaven. Maybe I'll go to hell. But if I go to hell, it's not going to last forever anyhow. And we begin to dilute the importance of God's holiness. So I'm going to suggest to you, as you can see on your little handout, that our salvation choice brings about a permanent condition. And that's not Sonny Chow's opinion. That's not something that I am just buying into because past men in our fellowship have stated it. As you see on the little handout, and by the way, this is only the beginning of the passages I could use. But as you see in your little handout hand there, you've got, dozen, you've got several passages. I don't know, one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight passages that I'm putting before you that suggest to you, don't just suggest, they say to you that hell is an eternal condition. And so, I, again, I begin with this statement. Our salvation choice brings about a permanent condition. I've got three points that I want to lay before you with regards to these ideas that hell is not eternal. 
And uh, in the process of presenting them to you, again, I, I hope to show you that it is indeed eternal and that we are just deluding ourselves when we think otherwise. The first question I want to pose to you is this, to those who would suggest that hell is not eternal. Why is it important, why is it important for hell not to be eternal? Why do you even ask the question? Why do you read passages such as the eight that I have on the paper before you? Why do you even read these and suggest, well, God didn't really mean that? There are passages in Scripture that are difficult to understand. In fact, you read the book of Ezekiel, Daniel, Revelation, and you find some passages of Scripture that are not only difficult to understand, but they clearly are symbolic in nature, referencing other things which is a direction that a lot of the, my friends and others would take with regards to undermining the eternal nature of hell. And they would say to us that really the idea of hell is just symbolism. It's the idea of being lost forever, being or the, the symbolic concept of being without God forever. It's not really reality. And yet when you go that direction, I have to ask the question, why do you even go that direction? Why is it important for you to decide that hell is not important or not, is not eternal? Why is that important for you to come to that conclusion? And I suspect that there's a lot of excuses that could be given for that perspective, but the first, and I think maybe predominant one, is I don't want it to be forever. But that's so typical to our, car, our culture, is it not? I don't want certain things in my life because it's inconvenient. I don't like paying taxes. But unfortunately, as a Christian, God says I'm supposed to be honest and pay all of my taxes. And you see the phraseology there. All of a sudden, I feel like that my faith has become a problem. And so we reason with hell. I don't want hell to be eternal because if it's eternal, that means that in those who are going there, grandma, great grandpa, whoever, or myself, that if I go there, that it's going to be forever torture, hurt, punishment, just nature of God. I don't like that. And so let's see what we can do to come up with an idea that makes it not eternal. It's denominationalism at its core. It's the idea of driving the ship according to where I want to go rather than where God wants to go. I want to read you a direct quote that was posted earlier this week by an individual I debate regularly online who's a former member of the church. And he writes this, If anyone deserves eternal hell, those who promote it and preach it are first in line. A former member of our fellowship says, if anybody deserves to go to hell, it's the people who believe in it. This same individual earlier this week posted a meme in which he talked about the unnecessary nature of believing in God. You don't really, it's not really important that you believe in God or Jesus. It's just important that you believe in love. Does that sound like a deluded hippie to you? Me too. Peace, baby. We just, everybody love everybody. And things are going to be best in our world. Well, I'm here to tell you that the hippies have taken over our culture and things aren't better. This individual who wrote this, if anyone deserves hell, eternal hell, it's those who promote it and preach it. 
they should be first in line. The individual who wrote that or posted that concept is deluded by his own desires. He has made a God of himself. It is classic humanism. So my first question for you as you debate in your own mind as to whether or not hell is eternal or not, my first question is, why would you think of it in any other way? When God clearly says repeatedly in Scripture, it is eternal, forever, everlasting, without end. Why would you question those terms if not for the fact that you just selfishly don't want it to be true? Secondly, with regards to the eternal nature of hell, I would ask this question. What does the comparison indicate? You'll notice on your paper I've circled one particular passage. I, I wanted you to zero in on this one because I've listed them in, in order so that you can kind of see how that the Bible plays out. And you can see throughout biblical history how God has always referred to hell as eternal. That's why I listed them in the order that I did. But when you come down to what is it, the third passage, Matthew chapter 25, I want you to use that to address this second question. What does the comparison indicate? And what I mean by that question is this, is heaven eternal? Everybody likes to think about going to glory that will never end. It's our hope, is it not, that we will one day spend eternity with the Savior in the blessed place on the other side that will never end. He will wipe away all tears. There's no need for the sun because we have the sun. We won't need a temple because God will be there with us. And we, we bask in this whole idea of us going to an eternal realm of paradise. But when it comes to hell, we don't like it that God uses the same exact terms to describe hell that he's used to describe heaven. Now go back to the, go to the passage now in Matthew 25 that I've circled and read for you there. Matthew 25, verses 41, then skipping down to verse 46, read the whole context, but this will get you the point. Then he will say to those on his left, depart from me, you cursed into eternal fire. His words, not mine. So the bad folks are going to go to eternal fire, prepared for the devil and his angels. Notice then what he says when you skip down to verse 46. Here's where the comparison comes in. And these will go away into eternal punishment. Second time that word's been used in our context. But the righteous into, watch it, eternal life. Same word. So whatever you do to hell, you got to do to heaven. If hell is temporary, heaven is too. How many of us are prepared to go down that path? When we make the argument, the failed argument. That God really didn't mean it when he repeatedly says throughout the entire biblical history that hell is eternal. He didn't really mean it's eternal. Well, then he didn't really mean that heaven's eternal either. Third question, and I'll end. And it's probably the biggest one or most important one that you should ask yourself. When I established the Restoration School of Biblical Studies, one of the founding principles that I had in mind was that when we interpret Scripture, we are going to use first and foremost Scripture to interpret Scripture. I'm not going to succumb to what the Reformation writers wrote. I'm not even going to succumb to what the Restoration writers wrote. 
I'm not looking to my favorite elder. I'm not looking to my favorite preacher. I'm not interested to hear from my favorite author. I want to know what God says about God. And so one of the foundational principles of the Restoration School of Biblical Studies is that we're going to let the Bible interpret the Bible. That being said then, when it comes to the subject matter of the eternal nature of hell, the best way for you and I to decide whether or not hell is eternal is not to ask Sonny Childs. It's not to ask the reformers, the restorers. It's not even to talk among yourselves. The best way for you to establish whether or not hell is eternal is for you to allow God to speak about what God has said within Scripture. Let the Bible interpret the Bible. That's why I presented for you more than one passage on the paper. You've got eight passages, and this is just the beginning, and I encourage you to continue to explore the other passages that are available to you. But as we read through these passages rather rapidly, I want you to see what the harmony of Scripture says about the eternal nature of hell. I mean, the evidence just becomes overwhelming. Every time I turn around, it seems like God is talking about it as being everlasting. It is forever or whatever it may be. And you've got to really twist yourself into a hermeneutical pretzel to get around the obvious lineup of God here. Go with me, and I'm going to do it rapidly. Go to the Isaiah passages. And I'm probably only going to emphasize what I have underlined here, but you're free. Please take time to study all these in depth. Isaiah 66, verses 22 through 24. Notice that he says in the opening, For as the new heavens and the new earth... That I shall make remain before me, says the Lord. So the comparison that he's making here is just like the new heaven and the new earth that he refers to at the end of the book of Revelation where we're going. He says, just like that, then skip on down to verse 24. And they shall go out and they're going to look on the dead bodies of the men who have rebelled against me. For their worms shall not die, their fire shall not be quenched. The everlasting nature, it's not going to end is placed within the same context of the new heaven and the new earth. So if the new heaven and the new earth are going to last forever, then the punishment of the wicked is going to last forever. Skip on down to the book of Daniel. Chapter 12, verses 1 through 2. At that time shall rise Michael, etc. You read the entire context, but down to verse 2 it says, And many of those who sleep in the dust of the earth shall awake. They awake to two different locations, or they're going to be sent to two different locations. Notice this. Some, he says, are going to awake, some to everlasting life, and some to shame and everlasting contempt, according to the ESV. Whatever you do with the life, you got to do with the contempt. They're both everlasting. Then you see the Matthew 25 passage that we've already talked about at length. I again review. These will go away into eternal punishment, but the righteous into eternal life. Whatever you do to eternal punishment, you do to eternal life. If it's eternal life, then it's eternal punishment. How long does life going to last in eternity? Same length as, as uh, hell is going to last in eternity. This is just simply watching God as the harmony of his words define his words. God's saying it, not Sonny. Mark chapter 9, skip all the way down to verse 48. Again, read the entire context. This one's specifically about people who would abuse little children. But verse 48, where their worm does not die and the fire is not quenched. It's a very similar passage to what you saw in Isaiah. Jude, chapters, well, there's only one chapter. Verse 6 and 7, then to verse 13. And the angels did not slay 
who did not stay, excuse me, and the angels who did not stay within their own position of authority, but left their proper dwelling, he has kept in his words, not mine, eternal chains under gloomy darkness until the judgment of the great day. Just as Sodom and Gomorrah and the surrounding cities, which likewise indulged in sexual immorality and pursued unnatural desires, he's saying that just like those bad people, he says they serve as an example by undergoing a punishment of eternal fire. Wild waves of the sea, skipping down to verse 13, casting up the foam of their own shame, wandering stars, for whom the gloom of utter darkness has been reserved, his word, not mine, forever. So again, you, you see how God is emphasizing the eternal nature. It's not Sonny's commentary. These are just words from God. Revelation 14, going to the conclusion of our book. And another angel, a third, followed them, saying with a loud voice, if anyone worships the beast in its image and receives a mark on his forehead and on his hand, he also will drink the, the wine of God's wrath, poured full strength into the cup of his anger. And he will be tormented with fire and sulfur in the presence of the holy angels and in the presence of the Lamb. But how long is it going to last? Well, keep reading. Verse 11. And the smoke of their torment goes up, his word, not mine, forever and ever. And they shall have, watch it, no rest day and night. Again, God describes it as an eternal condition. Then lastly, Revelation chapter 20. Verse 10 and then verse 15. And the devil who deceived them was thrown into the lake of fire with sulfur where the beast and the false prophets were, described earlier. And they will be tormented day and night forever and ever. And if anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. How long would they be in the lake of fire? Well, he just got done saying forever and ever. Now, I, again, am preaching at the choir. I get that, as they say. Uh, I'm talking to folks who already, I'm sure, have come to this realization. But I need you to know that many, unfortunately, within our fellowship are starting to second-guess it. Many within our fellowship, because they don't want it to be eternal damnation. They don't want it to be an eternal place. I've got loved ones who have gone there, and if I can somehow rationalize it, it's not going to last forever. It's going to make me feel a whole lot better. I'll sleep better at night knowing that those people are not in an eternal location of doom and gloom and, and horrible torture. I would just like for it not to be so. Well, you know what? There's a lot of things in life. I'd just like for it not to be so. But that don't make it so. The last thing I want to share with you is the scariest passage in all the Bible as far as I'm concerned. Because of the way it describes God. And although this particular passage doesn't necessarily mention the eternal nature of the judgment that comes upon us. If this is the type of quality of existence that happens in hell. Imagine what it would be like to go there forever. Proverbs chapter 1, verses 24 through 28. God says, Because I have called you and you refuse to listen, have stretched out my hand and no one has heeded. Because you have ignored all my counsel and have none of my, have, have, and would have none of my reproof, I, I also will laugh at your calamity. I will mock when terror strikes you. When terror strikes you like a storm and your calamity comes like a whirlwind, when distress and anguish come upon you, then they will call upon me, but I'll not answer. They'll seek me diligently, but will not find me. We've all seen the pictures, maybe on social media, whatever it may be, but we've all seen the pictures where Noah's 
ark is floating off in the distance and you've got people who are clinging to the last little vestiges of, of, of a rock formation or whatever. Some of them are drowning. Some of them are flailing around in the water. But they're all reaching towards the ark as if, uh, I'm ready now. I, I, I'd like to be saved now. Pick me up, Noah. I don't want to. And I can't help but think that that's kind of the fulfillment, some beginning of the fulfillment of what, or a picture of the fulfillment in our mind of what's happening in verse 28 when they'll call upon me, but I'll not answer. Now, Moses, not Moses, Noah had no ability to turn that thing around. I get it. It's not like he could make a rescue mission and turn around and say, okay, I'm glad you finally got it. You're ready to repent. He could. He didn't have the chance. But God could have turned the boat around. God could have stopped Noah's ark in the midst of his journey, opened the door, and let those folks in. But there comes a time when enough's enough. There comes a time when there's no more opportunity to repent. Those folks experienced it as an example to you and I that there's coming an eternal moment where well done, thou good and faithful servant, will never, ever echo in your ears. The wish for it, perhaps, in a hellish eternity, but never will it be heard. And so I don't really, to, especially to this audience, I don't say these things. I'm happy if they scare us, because I think that's a good thing for us to be sober-minded. But I don't really say them for that purpose. I really say it, especially to this audience, for the purpose of making you understand that many, maybe most, of those that we encounter on a daily basis are wishing for this very thing to be wrong. That Sonny Chow's sermon, the last 20 minutes I've spent for you, is just material that has no basis. They want that. And you can understand why. Nobody wants hell to be eternal. But as I've shown you in this handout, God has consistently defined hell as an eternal place. Thus, the application comes to you and I. What are we doing to keep, a, to keep our friends and neighbors from going to that place? Maybe more importantly, what are you doing to make sure that you never go there?